Um, but last week I kind of opened up by carrying through that narrative of Psalm 23 that we are sheep, right? Uh, sheep are those those uh, th- those animals that they are prone Welcome to wander. Welcome to the Graceway Sermon the thing about sheep Graceway is, is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. Cliff, we have a heart away. for God They'll and a deep love for people. Stream. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Personally, I'm like, man, God, you nailed it when you called me a sheep. Because it's just like that old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And it says, it says later on, take my heart, Lord, take and seal it and seal it for thy courts above. If it were not for God's sustaining grace in our lives, we would continue to wander off into darkness again and again and again because that's our nature. That's what we do. We're prone to wander. And why do we wander? There could be a lot of different reasons. Maybe it's because we haven't grown enough in our faith. Maybe it's because we're ignorant about certain things. Or maybe it's because we're stubborn. But I really believe it's this, and I believe the Bible tells us that we wander because we want to. Because we're just natural-born rebels in our sin. That's what we are. That's what we do. We rebel. That's why we have trouble anytime somebody says, don't do something. What do we end up doing? We end up doing it, or we at least really, really, really want to just because we were told not to, right? Or we're told to do something, and we really, really don't want to just because, well, I don't want to be told what to do. Anybody, anybody been there before? Is it just me? I'm the only one confessing these horrible sins, and I'm the least righteous person in the room, right? We are natural-born rebels. It's been our problem ever since the dawn of time. Adam and Eve, what did God tell Adam and Eve? He walks him through the garden. He gives him everything, right? Women, no pain in childbirth. Guys, no sweat while you're working. Everything is just just awesome. And then God says, you know what? You want to keep all this. Just don't eat from that tree over there. And what did they say? He said, don't eat the fruit. And what did they say? We're going to eat the fruit, man. As soon as God leaves, we're eating the fruit. Why? Because we're natural born rebels. It's in our nature to wonder. Henceforth, we are sheep. Ba, 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 right? We are sheep. I would love if we were like a more faithful animal, you know, like, 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 like man's best friend, like a dog or, or something like that. Obviously, we would never be cats, ever. But, you know, it would be, it'd be wonderful if we were something, something better. But no, we're, we're sheep. We're stubborn. We're prone to wander. And we need the guidance of the shepherd every step of the way. And then you turn to Psalm 51 and you see a shepherd boy turned king, come face to face with his own wandering. A shepherd, a guy who should have known how prone he was as a sheep to wander, and he probably shouldn't have wandered himself, and the Bible calls him the man after God's own heart. David goes through a series and a, and a period of wandering. And we find his wandering um, in the book of 1 Samuel, and in, second, in 1 and 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see the results of his wandering. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and and, and I kind of went through this, and I'm just going to skim it this week uh, from last week just to paraphrase what went on. But it's the sin that he commits with Bathsheba. David started to rebel against God. You see, God had made David king, and it was almost like David had gotten to a place where he was bigger than God. You know, it's almost like he got to, and maybe some of you have been there before, God, you got me here, but I'm going to keep myself here. I can take it from here, and I'm going to go to heights greater than what you've even brought me to. And don't sit there like you've never done that before, because we all do that. That's where our sin comes from. 
You see, David had been made king. He'd been taken from the shepherd's fields and made king. He'd been protected. He'd been, he'd been just brought up, and God had made him just the, the greatest thing since sliced bread in Jerusalem. I don't think sliced bread had been invented yet, but he was the greatest thing there since it. And what did he do? It got to his head. It moved from his heart of worship and praise for God to his head, and he began to wander off into David land rather than into the steps and the path that God wanted to lead him. And the Bible said that in the days that kings went out to battle and led their, led their soldiers out into battle, they, they warred on, based on seasons. There were seasons of the year when they would go out in war and try to extend their territory. And so the, the, in those days, the kings would go out, and the king was supposed to go out with them, and he didn't. The Bible says that he stayed back in his palace. One night he's out on his balcony or whatever it is, kind of, I think of it like when I think of David's balcony, I always picture in my mind, because I love the, the, the animated movie Aladdin, I pictured, you know, like that big huge balcony that Jasmine stood on, you know, out there with Raja, with the tiger, I pictured that when I think about David's balcony, and he's standing there, and he looks over, and he's looking over his kingdom, and he's taking in his greatness, and all of a sudden he sees Bathsheba, this beautiful woman that is taking a bath on the roof. We know the story. We know what takes place. He burns in his lust and his desire, and then he also lets his power go to his head, and he says, well, am I the king, or am I not the king? The king should have what he wants, and so he sends his messengers to go and get Bathsheba, and brings Bathsheba to the castle or to the palace, and he uses his authority and his power to, to, kind, of, to kind of coax her into a sexual relationship, and last week I went into a little bit more detail on how I believe that David operated in a very predatory nature. Sometimes we look at this, uh, this affair that took place and think that it was a consensual thing. I don't believe the Bible reads that way. I believe David abused his power and his privilege as king and caused Bathsheba to commit adultery against her husband. And then it leads to Uriah being killed on the front lines because Uriah as a faithful soldier would not come home and, um, and, and be with his wife to co try to cover up the pregnancy that took place between uh, David and Bathsheba. So then David now is an accessory to murder. He's like a, a mafia mob boss ordering hits on people. Kind of reminds you of the power of sin, right? Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It will always keep you there longer than you want to stay. And it will always cost you more than you want to pay. And then we see later on in the narrative in, in 2 Samuel when Nathan the prophet comes to David. Now Nathan, or David had been visited by prophets before. The prophet Samuel had come and anointed him as king. Now he's visited by God's man after Samuel's off the scene and Nathan comes to him, but he's not coming to anoint him. He's not coming to tell him good news. He's coming to tell him bad news. And he says, David, God saw everything you did. He's judged everything you've done and he saw the sin that took place. While you thought you were getting away with it, while you thought that everything was okay, because by this time, Uriah's off the scene, Bathsheba has, has, goes on and has the baby, and David marries her, and it looks like he's just this awesome man because he is, he is taking, he's comforting this grieving widow of one of his trusted soldiers, and so everybody loves David. I mean, he's up in the polls. There's nobody who's, who's opposing him. He's trending on Twitter. He's awesome. Except for God saw what all had caused all of this. And immediately when Nathan comes to David and begins to tell him the words of God that you are the man, you, are, you have sinned in the eyes of God. And then he says, and because of your sin, the sword will never leave your household. And if you read David's life and the legacy that, that, his, that his family leaves there is the royal family there in Israel, it is one that is full of, of scandal. It's one that is full of pain and dysfunction as a result of the sin that David committed here as a result of his wandering. 
And David's response to this was conviction. David immediately falls before God and he begins to pen these words and this is a word of prayer to God saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, forgive me, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You see, because while everything looked like it was good, David said, it's always in front of me. I can't look Bathsheba in the eyes. I can't look this baby in the eye. I can't do these because of the guilt and the shame of his sin. And so in many ways, Nathan's coming to David was an act of God's mercy, calling out the sin, confronting him with his sin so that repentance could take place. And many times we look at conviction and we want to run from it, don't we? We want to get mad when God brings conviction our way. But God's conviction is his mercy calling us to what we need more than anything, and that is repentance. Because without repentance, there cannot be restoration. And that's what we see in Psalm 51. We see repentance that leads to the joy of restoration. And last Sunday, we saw the first aspect of repentance and what it should and what it really looks like. And we saw this. If we're going to be truly repentant, we have to recognize our sin. We live in a culture and we live in a day, and it's no different than any other day, where what we do in our human nature is we sin and we try to make it okay. We try to normalize our sin. We try to justify our sin. We try to make our sin no longer sin. The problem is, is where we try to justify our sin is with the wrong party. We try to justify our sin before other people. If we can get everybody else to say my sin is okay, then it's okay. But the problem is God never says that sin is okay. It's never God's will for people to sin. And he's not changing his law. Sin is sin. And sin in its context is rebellion against God. And sin, the wages of sin is, help me out, death. Physical death, the death of dreams, the death of relationships, the death of all kinds of things. The wages of our sin is death. See, we have to own up to our sin, and we have to own our sin. David said, before you and you only have I sinned, God. He said, it's an affront to you, your character, and what you're doing in my life. Really, think about this. As a child of God, for us to continue in sin is a total affront to our good and gracious God. Before we're saved, it's an affront to God, our creator. Now after we're saved, it's an affront to God, our creator, and our redeemer. So how much more should we care about the sin and the rebellion? You see, the Spirit will continue to convict us as well. In verse number three, it says, I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. See, some of us, we just get used to that. We just get used to that sin being before us. We can try to put it away, but eventually it comes before our face. God continues because he pursues us as the shepherd. He pursues us with his voice of conviction to call us back. So we have to learn to see our sin as God does. And what David calls our sin is rebellion. It's rebellion against God's law. So we are all rebels. Every one of us. It's in our nature. Last week we did the rebel test, right? Just like Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. Oh, I'm going to eat the fruit. Last week I said, don't think about pink elephants. And everybody thought about, because we're just rebels. Wear a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. I'm going to wear a mask. You see, it's just, we're just rebels. It's just what we are. It's in our nature. We have to recognize that we are natural born sinners. But thanks be to God that he didn't leave us in our natural state. He died so that we could be redeemed from that. And that's when we turn to point number two. True repentance, a true repentant heart will fall upon grace and forgiveness. 
A true and repentant heart will fall upon God's grace and forgiveness. You see, because something happens when we are brought face to face with the true nature of our sin, we all of a sudden become really interested in God's grace and his forgiveness. I don't know about you, but when I'm standing with no excuse before God, all I can, all I can do is fall upon him for mercy. Because that's what God's law says to us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray in Isaiah We've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord laid upon him, Lord laid upon Jesus, our, all, all of our iniquities. See, one day we're all going to stand before God and his judgment, and we're going to give an account for how we acted and the, things, the times that we wandered in our sin, the times that we, were, we walked closely with him, and in those times that we wandered, we have no other choice but to plead the blood of Jesus Christ over our sins. That's the only recourse for our action. And so when we come to a place of true repentance, we become really grateful for the gracious blood of Christ. When you come to the point when you know that you stand in the wrong with no excuse and no defense, you throw yourself upon the mercy of God. And this is David's emotion in verses 1 and 9 and 14. Look again, he says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. In the King James Version, you see it as, have mercy upon me, O God. That mercy is often translated as faithful love in the modern translations. Then he says, if you skip down in verse number nine, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all of my guilt. What he's saying is, don't overlook my sins. He's saying, deal with my sins, blot out my sins. And the only thing that can blot out sins, the currency of forgiveness, is the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse number 14, save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. Because not only had David committed adultery, not only had he been a predator, but he had also been party to murder or to death or shedding of blood. So he says, give me, forgive me of the bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. See, you get the idea that he's desperate for grace and he's desperate for forgiveness and he realizes that not only did he take advantage of this woman, but the blood of his innocent husband was on his hands as well. And because of God's judgment, Nathan had said the sword would never leave his home. And he also was told that that baby that had just been born was going to soon die. So the blood of his son was now going to be on his hands too. Remember that we can never sin without effect. We never sin without consequence. Ever. And here's what he says in verse number 14. How does he address God? In all of his guilt, in all of his shame, and in all of his conviction, and in no excuse for what he's done, what does he say? He says, God, you are the God of my salvation. He realizes that there is nothing that he can bring to the table that will redeem him. He can't go back and change what he's done. He can't do anything to make up for the sins of the past. The only thing he can do is turn to the God of his salvation. Because if David could go back and make up for it, then he would be his salvation. But only Jesus Christ is our salvation. Only him. So in his repentant heart, David fully realizes that his only hope for forgiveness is God. Why? Because sin is a mountain that none of us can overcome. It's a mountain we can't climb. It's, <laughs> it's our Everest, man. We cannot climb it. We can try. We can try to get over it ourselves. We can try to justify it. We can try to cover it up. We can try to run away from it. But eventually, sin consumes. And sin destroys. But because of the grace of God, we can be made victors over our sins. You can't ignore it. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. You can't willpower your way through it. And all we need, all we need is what we all need. And that is salvation from this death, salvation from this sin. 
So true repentance falls upon the grace and the mercy of God, and it pleads forgiveness from the God of salvation. See, in other words, true repentance doesn't look like this. Yeah, God, yeah, I messed up this time. I really did an oopsie, so uh, thanks for dying on the cross for me. Thanks for saving me and going to heaven, and I'll catch you when I get there. So uh, thanks. Real sorry about that. I'll try to do better next time. How many times, I know how many times I've acted that way about my sin. But is that the way that David is acting here? That's not true repentance. True repentance falls upon the grace and the mercy of God saying, I can't do better unless I draw close to you. I won't do that again. You know, shame on me. You know, shame on, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, you know. It's not that. Sin is not that. Sin is a cancer that eats at us. And until the surgeon does the work of removing that and keeping us from it, we're powerless against it. And that's why number three, True repentance, not only does it fall on God's mercy and forgiveness, but it also craves God's cleansing. True repentance craves God's cleansing. You see, the shepherd, one of the things that the shepherd had to do with the wandering sheep, not after, after he would go out and risk life and limb to go and find that sheep, not only did he have to do that, not only did he have to carry the sheep with him and bring him back, but his work was not done. He had to bring the sheep back and often cleanse and heal the wounds that the sheep got while he was out. See, sheep had all this fur, not fur. They, what's, what do the sheep have? They have wool, right? That's what they've got. They don't have fur. Um, <clears throat> I guess you could say they have fur, but you know, whatever. I'm wearing sheep fur today. Yes, it's a wool sweater. But anyway, I digress. Um, so they would have to bring the sheep back and they would have to pick out the ticks and the bugs that got, that got buried down into that. They would have to nurse the wounds. They would have to do all kinds of things to bring that sheep back into a place where he could go in with the other sheep because he would probably have lice and have things that he could share with all of the other, the other bugs or the other, <laughs> the other sheep. Man, I took allergy medicine this morning. I don't know if you can tell. All right. Um, and that's, that's a good illustration for us. You see, we are, as sheep, we are being constantly cleansed by the shepherd. One, because it's good for us. Two, because it's good for the other sheep that we're around. But the shepherd had to cleanse the sheep. So we went, uh, so here's the thing. Last week I showed you the picture of this awesome animal, all right? This awesome animal, my dog Bentley. And I'm going to put him back up there again. <laughs> for those of you who missed out, and I just can't brag on him enough. Like I said, man, he is, he's, he's awesome. Uh, he's a hit with the ladies. Uh, he's about five years old, and he is 11 pounds of just viciousness, unless you've got a treat in your hand, and then he's your best friend. So anyway, I talked about how Bentley doesn't wander, right? He hardly ever wanders. There's been maybe two times in, uh, in the times that we've had him where Bentley actually wandered away. One of those times, we were actually out, and we were at, um, uh, we were at the church property over at, over at Lexington Baptist Temple. We were out in the, the backyard back there. And we see him, he's running, and he's chasing a ball, and all of a sudden, he runs past the ball that I'd thrown him. And he just keeps on running almost to the end of the property back there. And what many people don't know is that if you, come out, if you would go out there early in the morning, there were deer that would kind of, you know, drink from the creek. And, and it's a weird place for a family of deer to live, but they've lived there for years. And so then I look out and I see Bentley and he's just rolling around. You know, he's like, you know, doing all this stuff. It looks like he's having like some sort of seizure or something like that. And I'm like, dude, what is he doing? And I'm like, Bentley, come back. And he doesn't come back. He just keeps rolling. I'm like, Bentley, come back. And he keeps rolling. So I'm like, I got to go get him. And as I approach, the most foul, awful smell starts to come up. <clears throat> and I'm wretched. I'm like ready to lose my dinner. It's nasty. And I'm like, what is that smell? And I look down and I see Bentley and his fur is all matted and it's wet. And I'm like, what? In the 
Has anyone ever smelled deer urine before? I have. And when you mix it with wet dog, it is terrible. He had rolled around in some deer mess and stunk to high heaven. I had the girls with me. You will not believe the sounds and the moans and the groans and the awfulness as we are riding with windows down, mind you, everywhere we go. He's in the trunk of our SUV and we are rolling. I could not drive fast enough to keep the air flowing through there. Kids got their heads hanging out the window, you know? It was awful. So we get him to the pet store and we start to wash him out and it took like two or three washes just to get him there. Why? He needed cleansing before he could return to the house. Right? Because here's the thing. When we wander, we get dirty. All right, take Bentley off there. People are going to be distracted by that dog and they're not going to listen to me. When we wander, we get dirty. And the goodness of our shepherd is that he cleanses us. Now here's the way the shepherd works to cleanse us as his sheep. He calls us to repentance. There comes a time when the wandering sheep have to surrender to the care of the shepherd. And that's repentance. The first step of surrendering to the care of the shepherd is to say, I am wrong and the current state I am in is terrible and I want to be back in your good graces. I want to be back in your care. And the shepherd says, okay, let's get you cleaned up. And that's what repentance leads to. Repentance leads to the cleansing of forgiveness from God. So when we wander, we get dirty. We wander in our sin, we get dirty. We pick up scars, we pick up hurts, we pick up habits in our wandering. And part of that repentance is God's purpose and process of cleansing us. David says in verse number six, how he is in his conviction, he says, surely God, you desire integrity in the inner self. What he's saying is, I don't want you just to clean up the mess I've made. I want you to cleanse me. I want you to cleanse the source of the mess. David was not content just to say, hey God, forgive me and take away my shame and take away my bad feelings for this and make Bathsheba like me and make everything okay. Because that's the way a lot of us repent. We say, God, take away the consequence, but we don't say take away the core. And this is what David said, don't just cleanse the ticks. Don't just cleanse the stuff I picked up in my sin. Cleanse the heart that led to my sin too. All of our sin is a heart problem. The Bible says the heartful is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Sin is always a revelation of a broken heart. We all have broken hearts. We all have poisoned hearts. We all have hearts that are prone to wonder. And when we come to repentance in God, we have to understand that we're not just repenting so that we no longer feel bad in front of God. We must repent so that our hearts can be cleansed by him and we can be restored to a right relationship with him as well. He says completely in verse number two, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. And then he says, purify me in verse number seven with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop was basically, uh, it was a natural, uh, a natural element that was used in the ancient days. It was hyssop branches were used by the Israelites when they were in Egypt and the, 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 the death angel was about to pass over and he says, sprinkle blood onto the doorposts and an angel will pass over your household. It was, it was shared, it was, it was spread by those hyssop branches. They would sprinkle the blood with that. And hyssop branches were what, the, were what the priests and Levites would use to sprinkle blood and blood sacrifices at the temple, but they were also used in purifying rituals where that was taking place as well. Hyssop was then also used for cleansing agents and cleaning purposes as well. You see, when we repent of our sins, we're applying that hyssop 
that blood of Christ to our sins every time. See, I don't just plead the blood the moment I get saved. I plead the blood of Jesus Christ every day over my sins. The blood of Christ is not just enough to save you. It's what keeps us saved, and it's what continues to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as the word says. He says, God, create, in verse number 10, here's where he just gets down to it. In case you're missing it, and he's like, David's like, in case you're missing it here, here's what I want. I want a clean heart. He says, create a clean heart for me. He doesn't say, hey, forgive me of my sin and I'll cleanse my heart. He says, no, my heart will not be clean unless you do it. Why? Because the heart is the territory and the domain of God. We may change our actions, we may change our behaviors, but God works with the heart. This is why we struggle so much with other people, isn't it? This is why in our country we rail and we fight with each other on Facebook and we see the things that are taking place in our society with racism and things. We think that we can clean it up with certain things, but the real root of it all is going to be when God cleanses our hearts. Are there systemic problems that need to be dealt with? Absolutely. But we will not accept systemic change and goodness until there's a change in our hearts. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, is what David says. Don't just clean up my mess. Clean up the messiness inside of me that caused me to make the mess in the first place. So true repentance asks for God to cleanse us. He said, don't just deal with my action, deal with the root of my action. See, too often we view our repentance and forgiveness as at the visible levels only. So this is the question and the challenge today. When you think about your sin, are you only looking at the visible results of it? Is that the only thing that calls us to repentance sometimes is, man, I was really better off when I didn't sin like this. A clean heart notices that sin and tries to avoid it. And then lastly, this morning, true repentance will result in restoration. This is the good news. True repentance will result in restoration. Aren't you thankful for that? See, God doesn't just sit up in heaven and say, man, you messed up, so tell me you're sorry, and then go on. I've been told before, and I work on this a lot, that when I feel like I've been wronged and someone apologizes, it's hard for me to accept an apology. I've been told that before. I've been told that before. No one has to agree that's in the room. Anybody else do that? When someone apologizes, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm mad, and I want you to apologize, but now that you've apologized, I want to make you suffer. Anybody else do that? Or is it just, it's just me? I really didn't need to preach today, did I? When somebody apologizes, you, you know this, sometimes somebody apologizes and you're not ready to forgive yet. You're like, no, man, just keep being a jerk for a minute because I'm not done being mad. I'm liking this. But then we're like, also, too, we want to we base it on, are you really sorry? Because if you're really sorry, there'd be tears. Or if you're really sorry, there'd be like a gift involved or something like that. Here's what God does. When we repent and we are true in our repentance in our heart, he immediately responds with restoration. God doesn't hold us out and say, okay, prove it to me that you're sorry. Why? Because he already knows our heart. We don't have that ability to know a person's heart. He knows our heart because he's just cleansed it, by the way. So he knows that our heart is right, and now he can restore to us. This is how good God is. You see, the key to Psalm 51 is not David 
and his repentance. The key to Psalm 51 is God and his goodness that he makes repentance possible. See, David has spent his time as a wandering sheep. His desires of lust and his power overcame him and he rebelled as God watched it. Now in light of his conviction and his sorrow over the outcome and the result of his sin, his desire is to be restored to a right relationship. He wants to be that man after God's own heart again. He wants to be like that shepherd that was out in the field that God looked at and said, man, this is the next king of Israel. Not a predator. Not someone who is abusive of his power. So he spent time like that and he's like, man, I don't like that. I don't like the David that I've become on my own. So Lord, restore to me a right relationship where I walk closely with you and I sit in the field and I praise you for how good you are as my shepherd. Now don't miss the imagery here. David as a lowly shepherd who God elevated to a great king, this is a picture of what the gospel does. He elevates us from death to life. He elevates us from sinner to royalty as joint heir with Jesus Christ. He calls us out of that field and he sets our feet upon a rock and he names us his child. And when we wander away from that, we're wandering away from all the goodness that God has given us. So David knows the joy of being in step with God, but David now also has experienced the sorrow and the horror of being out of step with him. And he says in verse number eight, let me Hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Renew a steadfast spirit within me in verse number 10. And in verse number 11, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. What he's saying is you have every single right to turn your back on me and never let me back into the fold. But because you are good, you will not banish me. You will restore me. And he says in verse number 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David's desire was to be restored to a place where he was in close proximity and in awe with God. He wanted to be back in that place where he felt like that sheep that was right beside his shepherd, clean and well cared for, laying down in those fields and those pastures that were good for him rather than being tempted to wander away. So what about you? What about you? Have you been wandering? Is there cleansing that needs to take place? is the restoration that needs to take place. What could repentance restore in your relationship with the Savior right now? You see, maybe you've been holding out and as we get ready to move to a time of, of invitation. Maybe you've been holding out. Maybe you've been thinking, you know what, I've wandered too far. I'm so thankful that there is nowhere that we can wander that is beyond the reach of the shepherd. His rod and his staff, they comfort us and they pull us back to him. This is why Jesus said in, in, in the New Testament, he says, come to me, all that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the shepherd calling to the wandering sheep, come to me. I know you're weary. I know you're tired. I know you're dirty. I know you're scarred. I know you're bruised. But I will take you as I find you, and I will cleanse you, and I will give you a clean heart, and I will restore our relationship. And he will do it time and time and time and time again until one day he returns to take us with him, or one day he calls us home. This is the beauty of God, and this is the grace of God that we can come to him with repentance. And some people look at God and say, you know what, if God was so good, I wouldn't have to repent. He would just be okay with me as I am. Oh, he takes us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. 
He loves us too much to just leave us in that condition. He's constantly working to mold us and form us to the image of his son because he knows that in the image of his son is when we walk more closely and our, our knowledge of him is more intimate and our life becomes more meaningful. He loves us too much to leave us where we are distant from him. He loves us too much to just overlook everything. And that's for our good. And some of you this morning, here's what you need. He says, save me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. He says, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He says, he says restore to me the joy of my salvation and then I will, teach, I will teach those in rebellion against you your goodness. And this is why so many people today feel weak in their walk with the Lord. They don't care enough to share the gospel. It's because it doesn't come to their mind because the gospel is not good in their eyes because they're still sitting under the condemnation of their sin. Even those who know Christ, because when we still carry sin in our lives, there's still a distance that's created in our relationship. But you see this, the redeemed rejoice. The redeemed rejoice. The convicted cower. Which one are you? As the redeemed, we should stand and rejoice in the goodness of God and tell others about his goodness, but until we come to him in repentance, that restoration cannot take place. Some of you, you're like David in verse number 16, where he says, you don't want a sacrifice or I'd give it. Here's the thing, you're trying to make up for all of the stuff. You're saying, God, I know that I've sinned, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that I pray three times tomorrow because I know that I didn't pray yesterday. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make up for what I've done. You got secret sin in your life that you're carrying around and nobody else knows about it. You're getting away with it. You're like David having married Bathsheba and everything was looking good. Everybody looks at you and says, but between you and God, things are, things are rough. And here's what you say. Instead of just coming in repentance, here's what you say. I'm gonna try to make this sacrifice. I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna pray a little bit more. I'm gonna read my Bible. Or I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna give some money to the church. Or I'm gonna give some money over here. And that'll, that'll make me square with God. That's not how it works. David said, if you would take a sacrifice, I'd give it. He says, but what you want, the sacrifice you really want is a broken and a contrite heart. So the question this morning is, as we close out, is how broken are we in our sin? Ultimately, repentance is not about us. None of this is about us. Ultimately, repentance is not about us. This message is actually not even about us, although I'm calling us, and I believe it calls us to repentance, but it calls us to repentance through a view of the goodness of God because he makes repentance available. God could just say, if you sin, it's over, man. No more shots. But he says, I know that you're prone to wonder. I know that you're prone to sin. And as your shepherd, I will never tire. I will never tire of retrieving you so long as you never tire of calling out for me. And that may be you this morning. You feel like God has given up on you. Have you given up on calling to him? Today that might be the call for you. Call to him. So as we bow our heads and we close our eyes and we go into this time of response and invitation, see the main player in repentance is not the one doing the repentance, but rather the one to whom we repent. Repentance becomes real when we view God properly. Maybe you're here this morning or maybe you're watching and you don't know Christ as your Savior. Today's the day of salvation. Repent. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We come to him by repenting, by saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. 
I know I need you. And I'm asking you to change my direction from death and hell to life and heaven. The Bible says if we would put our faith and our trust in him and we would repent, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he will save us. If you need to be saved today, let today be the day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Maybe you're here, you're watching, you say, I'm saved, I know Christ. I'm like David, man, I know what it's like to be a sheep in the care of a good shepherd, but I've wondered. And while I may not have wondered as badly as David has, I still have wondered, and there's scars. And I've been trying to put off repentance because I've been trying to justify it or whatever it is, but for now, right now, I'm just tired. This is me. I'm falling upon verse number one that says, God, be merciful to me and show me compassion and blot out my sin. That's you this morning business with God. Maybe even read or pray Psalm 51 as your prayer of repentance. Claim it because God has allowed it. And the beauty of repentance is that it will always result in restoration. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.